The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hey, everyone, and welcome to our throwback episode. In our throwback episodes, we are reintroducing you to some of our most popular episodes. This is great for new listeners who want to learn more about the work we've done in the past, and it's a great refresher if you've been a listener for a long time. Enjoy. For the listeners who are newer, can you give a a little bit of background on who you are and what you do? Yeah, absolutely. I worked my entire career in negotiation training. I worked for a company that taught sales negotiation, procurement negotiation, and internal negotiation. So like those everyday conversations you have about deadlines and projects and all those important things that make your everyday world work or not work. And I've been on my own about three years now. I have a company called Negotiate with Confidence. Similar to you, I teach people how to negotiate more effectively, how to have those conversations that really matter. Fantastic. I love it. I love it. And (laughs) and listeners, if you haven't yet, make sure you check out her episode from early 2017. It's one of my favorites. So make sure you check that one out. And so I guess what I should do here is uh, hand it over to you and be willing to be led by our, our host for today. So I'll just turn it over to you. Well, I'm stepping into some big shoes, so I will do my best to be the host that your audience expects or the hostess with the mostess. <laughs> so Kwame, your book is just so compelling to me. I love that you make it really personal. And in fact, in the first chapter, you really start off with laying the groundwork about who you are as a kid, who you were growing up as a young adult, the kind of challenges that you faced, and putting that into the context of conflict management and negotiating. So I'd love to start off by just hearing what was the process for writing, for starting there in such a personal space and sharing with us your story. Tell us a little bit about what that process was like for you and how it feels to have your story out in the world like this. (laughs) <laughs> it feels uncomfortable. <laughs> That's how it feels. It's, it's weird. You know, for me as an attorney, I like the technical side. I like focusing on strategies and tactics. And and you listeners, of course, you know, I really like to get nerdy with it and get deep and granular into the work. That's where I feel safe. But um, I, I was working with my coach, my book coach, Azul Tarones. He was helping me through the process. He recognized that In the book writing process, it won't be transformational for the audience if it isn't transformational for you. And um, so he really pushed me. And so he was asking why it's so important for me to share these tips. Why do you care so much about teaching people how to negotiate? And I said, well, you know, the reason is, I guess I was really bad at it. I was profoundly bad at it. And so he just kept asking, why? Where did that come from? And so I shared that story on the playground. And what's funny is nobody knew that story. I never Mm. told my parents. I never told my brother. I never told any of my close friends. Nobody. It happened, and then I buried it deep inside of me. So for those of you who haven't read the book, it explains the title. Nobody will play with me. So as a um, Caribbean-American, first-generation Caribbean-American, I grew up in a small town called Tiffin, Ohio. We were the only black family in town, pretty much. And not only that, since my parents taught me how to talk, I had a very strong Caribbean accent. And now, as an adult, I know how to uh, 
put it on when the time is right and, and put on my business American accent when it serves me. So right now I'm business American, Kwame. I'm just going to make a quick note to someday I would really love to hear that Caribbean accent, Kwame. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know what I'll have to do is I'll uh, I bring it out in the TED Talk briefly, but I, I should just tape a conversation of me talking to my parents and uh, oh, people will be like, that. who is that man? <laughs> I love it. I love it. But for yeah. a little kid on the playground, it probably wasn't as exotic and interesting to the kids as it would be to me or your fans, right? Exactly, exactly. And, you know, different is scary sometimes. And I get that now. But at the time, it, it really hurt. And I remember yeah. um, it was recess and um, it was time to go out and play. And so I remember going to one group of kids asking if I could play with them and they said no. Going to another group of kids asking the same question and they said no. And then getting really desperate at the end of the, of the recess period and going up to a third group of kids and getting rejected again. And I remember just going into the school after recess, just bawling, just crying and just could not stop crying. My teacher said, listen, everybody, you need to be more inclusive because I told her and I said, nobody would play with me. That's why I'm crying. And really her announcement didn't matter too much to me because at that time I made a decision. I said, this will never ever, ever happen again. People are going to like me. I'm going to be popular and everybody's going to be my friend. And so I went on a friendship offensive. Um, I, uh, <laughs> I uh, was really friendly to people. And uh, by the end of grade school and at the end of high school, I was the most popular kid. Everybody liked me and I was successful or so it seemed, but it came with a price. I was unwilling to engage in difficult conversations because I worked too hard to get these friends and I didn't want to risk losing them. And yeah. so that's what made me a people pleaser. And so in the book, I kind of outlined how I used what I learned in my undergraduate degree in psychology to treat my fear of difficult conversations like a phobia. And so I used the fundamental tenets of cognitive behavioral therapy to get over it. And so I kind of walk people through that process in the first half of the book, how they can find confidence in conflict, how they can overcome those psychological and emotional barriers themselves. And then at the end of the book, I talk about the compassionate curiosity framework that actually allows you to have that difficult conversation in a way that doesn't jeopardize the relationship. It just makes me want to cry thinking about little first grade Kwame out on the playground. And so many of our kids go through experiences like that. But I also related to your story as an adult, because as you know, just about everybody has at some time or another gotten a no. You know, you work your way up to have the courage to ask for a raise or to ask to extend a deadline or whatever it is that you're negotiating. And it just doesn't go your way where you feel that rejection. And as adults, it can be really hard to process that rejection and move forward, especially if it's something where you feel like your reputation was on the line or maybe, you know, you're taking it more personally than you should. And so when you shift into this idea of compassionate curiosity in the book, and I want to hear how you made the decision to focus on that, I saw the connection because the best way to get through that fear, to get through that rejection, to get through any stumbling block in a negotiation is to approach it with curiosity versus some kind of tactic. And that clearly comes through in the book. So tell us a little bit about, you could have really gone in any direction with the technique that you wanted to focus on for helping people negotiate. How did you make that connection between where you started and using compassionate curiosity? 
So the framework, I wanted it to be a foundational framework upon which you could build every other negotiation technique. And so when I go into different companies like Fortune 500 companies where I'm talking to people who are negotiating six and seven figure contracts, I start with this framework, even though it is it seems a little bit simplistic and it is intentionally simplistic. I start with this framework because I want it to be generally applicable. So it's a framework that you could utilize both at work and at home in every single difficult conversation that you have. And then if you want to be more strategic, then you layer on additional high-level tactics on top of it, but you start with compassionate curiosity. And so going back to the simplistic nature of it, it's um, a three-part process. So the first step is acknowledging emotions. The second step is getting curious with compassion. And then the third step is joint problem solving. And the reason that I made it so simple is because I wanted it to be a framework that people could think back on and utilize even when they are in their most stressful situations. Because when you're in a difficult conversation and you are starting to get embroiled in emotions, what happens is your body often floods with a stress hormone called cortisol. And cortisol clouds your thinking. You can't think as clearly. Also, when your HPA access starts going, which is your stress response again, your adrenaline starts pumping. It inhibits the depth of processing that your prefrontal cortex can achieve. And so that's the logical thinking part of your brain. And so when you need it the most, your brain is performing at its worst. And so I didn't want to give something that was incredibly complex because I knew that you wouldn't be able to access it given your mental state. And so I wanted it to be something that people could instantly remember and say, ah, compassionate curiosity. I know what I need to do. I found my footing and I can figure out where I need to go in this conversation. Tell us a little bit more about this three-step strategy. I love that it's so simple because like you said, you're sitting there, the other person says something you weren't expecting, your stress hormones flood your body and you can't think. So Tell us a little bit more about each of these three steps. You say acknowledge emotion. What does that mean? So when it comes to acknowledging emotion, essentially what you're doing is you're pointing out the elephant in the room. You can tell that there's something going on with the other person and you want to let them know that you see it. And Mm. the benefit is it makes them feel as though they are emotionally validated. Because a lot of times the, the worst thing you could do is if somebody's really upset or frustrated or sad or mad, you say something like calm down or relax or it's not that big of a deal, which obviously has the uh, <laughs> the opposite impact. It inflames them because what you're doing is you're belittling their emotion. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From LinkedIn News, I'm Leah Smart, host of Every Day Better, an award-winning weekly podcast dedicated to personal development. Whether you're looking for ways to shift your mindset or seeking more fulfillment in your life, 
We've got you covered. You can build internal resources. That's what the study of psychology is about, building internal resources. Turning towards is one of the most important elements of successful relationships, no matter what kind of relationship it is. The thing that underpins all of this productivity stuff is finding a way to make the journey itself enjoyable. The journey is the destination. The beauty of uncertainty is infinite possibility. When you don't know what's next, you don't know what's next. And thus, anything can be next. Join me as we dive into captivating stories and research-backed ideas that have empowered me and others to lead lives with more clarity and intention. Everyday Better, making growth an everyday practice. Listen to Everyday Better on the LinkedIn Podcast Network, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And so when you think about it, psychologically, what's happening is that you're in a conversation now with their amygdala. Their amygdala is firing and it is an emotional response that you're dealing with. And the way to quiet the amygdala is by labeling the emotion. And in order for them to be able to say, okay, yes, correct, that's the right emotion or no, that's wrong, that's the wrong emotion, they need to start to think logically about it. And the thing is, once you say you pinpoint it, then it has a calming effect because now they don't feel like they need to impress upon you the fact that they feel this way or make you feel the ramifications of their emotions. They say, okay, Kwame sees me and he gets it. So here's an example. So in my mediations, a lot of times um, it's a situation where litigation has led to this point where we're about to go to trial, but the judge sent it to us to try to resolve the conflict. And so they might have been in conflict for over a year at this point going back and forth, but they haven't been able to find a resolution. And in so many of cases, it's not a substantive barrier that's preventing an agreement. It's an emotional barrier first. It's both. It's usually a mixture, but you can't get to the substance until you get through the emotion. And so I would say, if I were in your position, I would feel frustrated. And so sometimes if they're not, if they're not willing to open up, I'll just guess, but I'll personalize it. So if they don't want to own it for themselves, I'll own it for them and say, if I were you, <laughs> I would feel frustrated. And so it has a magical impact because let's say in some situations, they would say, yes, I'm frustrated and here's why. And then they'll start to share more information because it's almost like a deluge of feelings kind of come forward and they're going to share that thing that was hidden behind the emotion. Or they might say you're wrong, which is still good for me because people hate to be mislabeled. So I went to OSU. So let's say I don't want to talk about my alma mater for some reason. Which school did you go to? Well, I'm not telling you which school I went to. And then they say, hey, did you go to Michigan? <laughs> no, <laughs> I went to the Ohio State University. It's like, I might not want to tell you, but I don't want you to mislabel me. That's worse. What happens, and I remember very distinctly in one of my mediations, I, I said, I did, did the frustration move. And she said, no, Kwame, I'm not frustrated. I'm angry. And I am angry because of X, Y, and Z. And then she just shared the information that she was holding back the entire mediation. And so the emotional barrier is often the first battle that needs to be fought. And you can't even get to the substance unless you address the emotional side. The acknowledgement that you can't move forward until the other person feels like they've been seen or heard in some way from the emotional side of it, it's counterintuitive to those of us who may feel like, but this is just a negotiation. We're dealing with facts and figures here. What you're pointing out is that is so important and often overlooked that we are driven by our emotions. 
so my question is, how does this acknowledge phase, acknowledging the emotion of the other person, what happens with you? Are you addressing anything about your own emotions during those situations? Sometimes I recognize that it's important for me to get vulnerable first in order for them to be willing to share some information. And so you need to have strategic disclosures. You need to be willing to disclose something that doesn't necessarily hurt your position, but triggers reciprocity and makes them feel safer to share, safer sharing that information with you. And then you'll be able to notice that as the conversation goes on, if you acknowledge the emotion and they feel validated and you don't need to agree with their position, that, that's an important part of it. You can recognize that there is legitimacy in the way that they feel without succumbing to their position. And that's a key distinction. And so once you acknowledge that emotion, you might start to see the emotional tenor of the conversation going down. And that's when you can shift to the substantive issue. And that's when you shift to step two, which is the compassionate curiosity side of it. I think one of the hidden benefits of the framework is that it helps you with timing because it doesn't make sense to give a logical message to somebody who is operating with the illogical part of their brain. We've all had those situations when we say something that is just factually accurate and the other person rejects it. And we're like, what world are we living in? <laughs> and then you start responding with more facts, more figures, more logic. But what's really happening is that we are now in a situation where we're talking to their internal toddler. It doesn't matter what you say at this point. They're incapable of comprehending it at a high level. And so this helps you to identify when in the conversation you should say what. And if they're in a highly emotional state, all the logic, all the facts, all the figures that you want to bring to the table, it doesn't matter. They're not ready for it. And so you have to work your way through this process in order to get to the substance. I think about that analogy when you think of when someone is in danger and like the moms who can lift a car off their toddler and they get that surge of adrenaline that allows them to do something that requires superhuman strength. And thinking about that's the stage that their brain is in. They may not be lifting a car, but all of that adrenaline is rushing through their brains in that moment. And they're unable to think clearly. If you were to have a conversation with a mom who just lifted a car off her toddler and say, tell me about what you're feeling right now. She's in that completely unable to articulate anything that's logical in that moment. And that's essentially what people are in. That's what I'm reading into what you're saying and what I read in the book. That's the moment that people are in. And you need to know through using compassionate curiosity how to move them out of that stage of highly reactive, my brain can't even think about logic, into the next phase, which is compassionate curiosity. And, and with the compassionate curiosity stage, the reason that I use the word compassionate there is because it helps you to moderate your tone. And so what I do is I, I say, let's not get into a very deep discussion about the definition of compassion. I don't want this to get into semantics here. So just think about somebody who you think is compassionate. When you think about a compassionate person, who comes to mind? And what's crazy is the majority of times when I do these at keynote speeches or um, during my workshops, a significant amount of people say Mother Teresa comes to mind. A lot of people say, oh, my grandma, my mother, you know, Gandhi, something like that. Those are the people who come to mind. It's like, okay, great. Whoever that person is, it doesn't matter, but just keep that person in your mind. And then the question becomes, if Mother Teresa were here in this conversation, how would she ask an open-ended question? 
And the reason I say that is because we've been in situations where you might have said something where if you just look at the words that were said, it was completely legitimate. Nothing was wrong with what you said. But somebody might say, why are you yelling at me? Or why are you mad? (laughs) Like I'm not yelling. The decibel levels of my voice have not increased at all. What they're really saying is that you sound like a jerk. (laughs) You sound like a jerk right now. And so let's let's go back to the brain. So if you've worked hard to acknowledge the emotions and you have really quieted the amygdala and you've moved on to the substance, if your tone is off, they'll read that as a threat. And if they read it as a threat, it triggers the fight or flight response. And now you're back into the hyper emotional response and and you're backtracking and that's not good. And so you want to make sure that as you're asking these open-ended questions and soliciting the information you need in order to move on to stage three, which is joint problem solving, which is essentially just collaborative negotiation, you need to make sure that you keep them in a productive mindset and you do it by moderating your tone so they feel safe sharing the information with you. That's really fascinating because my husband is always saying that to me, like, why are you so upset? I'm like, I'm not upset. I'm so not upset. So I have to make sure that I'm not coming across as jerk because that's not good. But what it really, what it really brings to light for me is that people hear your tone in completely different ways based on their own experience, the baggage that they're bringing into the room. Maybe this is a high-profile negotiation for them. If they're not successful, they're going to get fired. Their job is online. Their promotion's online. And therefore, they're operating from a different place than you are. They're bringing their own experiences into the room. And you don't necessarily know whether or not your tone is going to be triggering them in some way. So how do you how do you kind of tap into that? How do you know if you're if you're upsetting the other person or if your tone is not aligned with what they find acceptable? A big thing for me would be paying attention to their tone and how they respond, how it changes, and also their body language if you're having an in-person negotiation. And if you're not having an in-person negotiation and you don't have the benefit of body language, let's say you're on the phone, because a lot of times these negotiations happen over the phone now, in those types of situations, you want to pay close attention to their breathing. And the breathing tells you a lot about the situation. Are they sighing? Are they breathing heavily? Has it become completely silent? Um, That might Mm -hmm. indicate that their body language has completely stopped. So they're having a freeze response because in your with the fear responses, it's fight, flight and freeze. Maybe Mm -hmm. they've frozen. It's like, okay, that's a fear response that might be problematic, too. And so you just need to be very mindful and not just listen with your ears, but also with your eyes. So you can tell where their where their head is during the conversation. And then again, if you're in a situation where you might have moved past the emotion and then you ask a question and then you hear some emotion coming back, then you just cycle back to stage one. And that's the Mm. beauty of the the framework. It's flexible. It's not a rigid framework. Depending on what you are reading in the situation, it's like, oh, emotion, acknowledge the emotion. Emotion gone, compassionate curiosity. Now I have information, joint problem solving. It helps you to know what to say at what time. The timing is a critical element, but it is really a feel thing. You have to be really cognizant of, of what's going on on the other end. I love that because it's so simple and it's just a structure that you can go back to over and over again. And so many times if we're in a conversation that is emotional, we're thinking about what to say next and not paying attention to what the other person is telling us through their body language and through their emotions. So you're really asking your readers to shift from 
me, I'm thinking about myself, what am I going to say next? How am I going to respond to this? To the whole idea behind compassionate curiosity is flipping that to the other person and watching and listening and being more in tune with others, which from a big picture, like make the world a better place can be extremely powerful. Absolutely. And so you can see the clear applications in business, but you can also see how you could just take this exact same framework and and use it with your spouse. I use this framework with my wife, use it with my son everywhere. It's very helpful. And the thing is, the way you do it, it doesn't seem like you're going through a mechanical, icy type of um, negotiation technique. It's a very warm approach. And the thing is, they don't feel as though you're doing anything differently, but they feel better. I love the stories that you tell about Kai in your book. <laughs> I also love the story that you you share in your TED Talk about exactly this topic and how you use compassionate curiosity with your wife. So be sure to put a link to your TED Talk in the show notes, Kwame, yeah, because we'll uh, <laughs> if your listeners haven't seen that, it is a phenomenal TED Talk, funny, warm, personal, and all the personal stories that you share really bring these concepts to life for us because we spend a big portion of our lives at work needing to use these skills. And we spend a lot of times with the people that we love and feeling like we can develop a closer, more connected, authentic relationship with those people in our lives using these skills is a real gift that you're giving to people. Thank you. And fun fact, I've eaten three bowls of Cinnamon Toast Crunch today already. (laughs) You're going to have to listen to the TED Talk to know what that means. (laughs) (laughs) So is there more about problem solving and this idea of creative problem solving? It can be really hard for people to, especially in the moment, okay, I've got more information. Now I wasn't expecting these things to come out. How do I get into that mode? Do you have tips for people or things that are in the book that you want to point out about how creative problem solving works and how we can access that part of our brains when we're in an actual negotiation? Yeah. So when it comes to the third step, joint problem solving, where you're working with the other side to see if a deal exists, what you're doing here is essentially you're turning this into a brainstorming session. You have all the information you need about the substantive issues and the emotional issues, and now you feel as though you can work together to try to create a future that works for both sides. And so you come up with a solution then you have the discussion and then they come up with a solution, they have a discussion and then then that's it. And so again, if they give an offer, then really the way that works is if you make an offer, you have to defend it. So if somebody provides you with an offer, then you switch back to compassionate curiosity to learn more about that offer and figure out the why behind the offer. And then you can counter in a way that meets those needs substantively, even if it is not an acceptance of their direct proposal. And so you just keep going back and forth until something works out. And I think what's important to note in this process is the fact that negotiation isn't the art of deal making. It's the art of deal discovery. You could go through this process and not come up with a deal, and that's 100% fine. Not all deals are meant to be made, but through this process, you can engage in the process in a way that can actually strengthen the relationship and set the foundation for a relationship that survives the negotiation regardless of the outcome. Because in most of these situations, it's not a one-shot deal. You're going to be coming back to the table with this person, especially if you're married to them. Uh, So you want to make sure... (laughs) Right. So you want to make sure you engage in the process in a way that respects the relationship and, and puts you in a good position in the future. 
What do you think about going back afterwards? Now, obviously, with your spouse, this is easier to do, but you leave a negotiation, you didn't get a deal, you couldn't figure it out, but then you're you're kind of mulling it over later. What's your opinion about going back to somebody and saying, hey, I had an idea? I love that. If the conversation doesn't consummate in a deal, that's not a failure necessarily. So in that situation, if it doesn't end in a deal, that's not a failure necessarily. If you engage in the com- the conversation in a respectful and thoughtful way. But what I do is I leave it a little bit open-ended and I give them an opportunity to adjust their position while still saving face. And so mm-hmm. I might say something like this. Well, what I'd say is this. How about we put a pin in this conversation right now? Let's come back to it at another time. If something changes on your end, let me know. And I'll do some research on my end and see if anything changes. And then we could have another follow-up conversation. Maybe Tuesday at 3 p.m.? Sure, whatever. By simply saying, go talk with your team, see if anything changes, it allows them to say, oh, the circumstances have changed and I've adjusted my opinion without them being in a situation where they feel as though they're kind of conceding when uh, they made a hard stance on a point. And sometimes if you make a hard stance on a point, even though you really wish you could backtrack, just because you don't want to look ridiculous, you don't. But by saying that, I give them the opportunity to adjust their position while still saving face. So the negotiation stays open. That's a great tip. That's a great additional tip. And it does connect back to this running theme throughout your book about compassion, connection, acknowledging the other person, all of which is going to build a much stronger relationship with the person you're negotiating with. Exactly. And that's one of the the value in the relationship shouldn't be overlooked because a lot of times we focus on dollars and cents, but there is value, a different kind of value in the maintenance of these relationships. So I always want to make sure that when I'm teaching this to uh, different people in the workshops, I focus in on the fact that you want to make sure that you engage in the process in a way that the person leaves the negotiation table feeling respected and the relationship still has a firm foundation for the next negotiation. That's so helpful, Kwame. I just really want to encourage your listeners, if you haven't read the book, it is just chock full of great tips. You've got sections on confidence, what it means to be confident, how to increase your confidence. You've got some components of gender nuances and the work that you did for some women's organizations. It's just incredibly thoughtful and 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 very easy to read. This is not like a heavy textbook. This is a book that is going to be useful and helpful and engaging. And the stories that you tell throughout of your family and of Kai really are memorable. It's the stories that we remember that bring this stuff to life for us. So I want to thank you for bringing this book into the world and and giving it to those of us who really need your insight and your help. My pleasure. Thank you. And I am glad that you enjoyed it. I did. Congratulations, you've just joined an elite club. By listening to a full episode, you're now officially on the Negotiate Anything team. So welcome aboard. What most team members do is they subscribe to the podcast because that allows them to automatically get the latest episodes of the show. The best things in life lie on the other side of difficult conversations. Keep learning, keep practicing, and keep getting better. Your relationships will improve, your career will soar, and you'll have the confidence you need to get the most out of these crucial conversations. Again, thank you for joining the team. We're excited to have you, and I will see you in the next episode. I'll catch you later.